The lens with which we look at reality matters a lot. We so often forget that we're looking through a particular lens. This lens is patterned into us, inherited, received, cultivated by our families of origin, by belief systems, by culture, by social location, by race, by ability, and even the direction in which we choose to look. Who we choose to see and be in relationship with, and who stays blurry on the outside edges or, or who doesn't even make it onto our frame at all. The apertures of our lenses need to be explored and expanded. The conditions with which we look at each other or assume we know or understand each other need to be unknown constantly. Today's guest embodies that pursuit of, of constantly opening the aperture of his heart and encountering people with absolute dignity, respect, awe and wonder, and even love. Tim Shriver is predominantly known as the chairman of Special Olympics, as a member of the Kennedy family. He is an activist, he is a film producer, as chairman of SEL, the Social and Emotional Learning Movement. I know Tim as a friend, as a colleague, as a coach, as someone who has mentored me that I have had the privilege of working with in some really exciting initiatives in Washington, D.C. And you know, a lot of times we think that we're too small to make an impact politically, socially, or that the forces are just too great for us to fight against. So I wanted to sit down with Tim and explore how changing our lens, our aperture, how, how does unknowing play a central role in creating a new possibility, not just for us individually, but for us as a society. So with that, let's jump right into the conversation on episode six of Unknowing with Tim Shriver. Well, I'm so grateful that you made time to be on Unknowing today. I already shared with you, I'm particularly geeked to have this conversation because it's been a while since we've connected and it's such a joy to discuss these intersections of spirituality and politics and social change, which I know is going to be a big part of this juicy conversation. But to begin, I usually like to invite guests to share about the map that you're given when you were growing up to make sense of your reality, because these maps have a way of really shaping us and shaping our world and setting us in a particular course or direction. So, Tim, what was the map that you were given when you were growing up? Well, that's an interesting question because, of course, you get, uh, at least in my case, I feel like I could answer it many different ways. There was the map uh, of my family. That map involved uh, ambition, uh, extraordinary amounts of hard work and almost frantic energy, um, uh, a very publicly facing parents and uh, extended family, a large family. I held only, I only had four, bro three brothers and a sister, but I had 27, 28 cousins, depending on how you counted. Our family was in political or social or, or public life. Our family was big. Our family was ambitious. Um, our family was very much 
immersed in what we thought of as the work of trying to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. It was justice, it was peace, it was the transformation of hatred or racism or violence or limitation or discrimination into community, into belonging, into trust, into hope. So that's one map. One map was you uh, you are surrounded by lots of energy and you have high expectations and we are going to get after this and there's no time to waste. Get up, get on to yourself, no time for pity, no time for, certainly for self-pity. So that was, I'd say, one map and it led in a certain direction, uh, parts of which I embraced and parts of which I separated from. Um, there was a second map, which was the map of our religious tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition. That was as powerful. My, both of my parents were very serious about their faith. My dad uh, spent a lot of time reading and thinking and studying the theology of the faith. My mom, also a student of her faith, both of them daily communicants, both of them uh, people who carry rosaries. So, you know, some things have stayed with me. Um, both of them people who, who believe deely. They took their honeymoon, you know, when, when they got married, when they went to Lourdes, you know, I mean, sorry, oh, I think they went to Fatima, Fatima. So, you know, this was a very, the, the sacramental life of the Catholic tradition, the intersection of time and timelessness, the intersection of God's work and our work, the uh, commitment to follow in the traditions of the great saints of the church in trying to work tirelessly to bring about goodness on earth. I mean, these were things that not uh, didn't feel like they were uh, separate from life. Uh, uh, in some ways, our faith tradition was also our emotional language. Um, and so a lot of things came through uh, church practices and church communities. The, you know, the radical priests of the 60s were at our dinner table. Dorothy Day came to our dinner table. Uh, the nuns who were, uh, you know, trying to uh, protest at the nuclear weapon sites were part of our life. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly, Bree, but uh, I feel like I was given a couple of strong skis on which to ski in my life. And I wouldn't say I took them all lock, stock and barrel, but I've uh, against the odds, um, very feel very comfortable both today in my family and also in my faith tradition. As crazy as it seems that anybody could be comfortable in their faith tradition today, I remain comfortable in mine. Yeah, you certainly do. I mean, that's one of the things that I found so striking about meeting you and your family was the sense of, oh no, these these are folks who who take their faith very seriously and not in a um, performative or precious way, but in an integrated sense of um, the duty of full participation kind of way. And I like to ask about moments of rupture with those initial maps. And, you know, in your case, Tim, I wonder if if you inherited a profound rupture that happened in your family because your Aunt Rosemary became a catalyst for a really critical shift in the forging of a new page or a new layer to your family's map. And in your book, you say, we were a family who lived as if winning and gaining influence were indispensable to our happiness. So how could we then explain Rosemary's life was a value too? So I wonder if you could share about the pivotal contribution that your Aunt Rosemary made 
And a lot of people may know the the history and the facts and the story of your family's life, but hearing you talk about it is always um, such a profound, heart-shattering and heart-opening experience, and I think really pertains to the theme of unknowing. You know, my mother was one of nine, and her family, her siblings are known for the brothers, uh, her brother, President Kennedy, and her two brothers who served in the United States Senate, Bobby and Teddy. And to this day, that's largely to the extent we have, you know, these things fade over time, as we know. So uh, new generations are growing up that aren't immersed in, in the story of those political days. But to the extent people know the family, that, those, that's what they know. And what they don't know is that one of the siblings, my aunt Rosemary, was born with an intellectual disability and spent her whole life struggling to fit in, to belong, to go to school, to learn to read, to do mathematics at a basic level. And then later in life, after my grandfather tried to help her by ordering an operation that he thought would help her, which severely limited her capacity after it, uh, quiet, um, unable to speak in any kind of a public way, unable to perform any kind of a public task. But I think in a way, Rosemary was the secret to everything that the rest of her siblings achieved, or at least what they believed. And I don't think they would have said it, but I don't see anything other than Rosemary Mm. that explains this capacity to hold both this great ambition and what I would call in my family a great tenderness and vulnerability. Uh, People still speak to me and come up to me and say, well, you know, your Uncle Bobby, he had such a such an authenticity, such a heart, such passion, such empathy. And, you know, I could never prove it, but I don't think there's any explanation other than he grew up with a sister the world didn't love. You know, he grew up loving someone the world hated. And the same with my mother and the same thing with President Kennedy and the same thing with all of us in a way. We were schooled at the at the book of ambition and achievement. And we were also schooled at the book of deep vulnerability and um, uh, ostracization, maybe even uh, marginalization with today we would call exclusion, even oppression. So it's funny because you think, well, look at these, you know, they're wealthy, they're powerful, they're white, they're man, you know, he's a man. How could I possibly be referring to oppression? But I would say that my, my mom, her sisters and her brothers, all knew something of what it means to feel like a social outcast because someone they loved deeply was exactly that, a social outcast. And, you know, they, they just learned how to do both and um, how to be very ambitious and always look out for the little guy because they knew something intuitively had been taught to them, that if you look over your shoulder, there's going to be somebody who doesn't deserve to be left out. Get them back in the picture. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. I can hear my mother's don't you dare leave them out. And with a, you know, wasn't just, you know, be nice. It was like... Uh, Righteous fury. A fierce yeah. determination uh, mm-hmm. to ensure that um, there was no one left on the margins on our watch. And there's so much that I can witness in the story of your life that in reading your book, Fully Alive, but also just in knowing you, that even as a teacher, as you began your exploration of the lack of skills that were being taught in support of emotional development for kids. You talk about this awe that you had for your students' freedom of expression and sense of self. And I wonder if 
if you would agree that that this combination of Rosemary's gift with this particular map that you were given that pushed you in this direction of complete and radical inclusion, was this the beginning for you of a new type of knowing, of maybe unknowing the way that the world teaches us to see uh, as you're either success or you're a failure. You're either acceptable member of society or you're an outcast. You're either on the right side of the political divide or you're one of those people. And instead of just discovering a new kind of set of values or metrics of the heart, of seeing in a new kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have had that language as a kid, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but I wouldn't have had that language. We didn't even have the language really of emotion in my family, really, honestly. How you felt was sort of like, does anybody really care? I don't think so. So just get on with, you know, the rest of the work. Um, So emotion wasn't important uh, in my family. I, I remember when I was training in child development, uh, one of the great child psychiatrists who was running a, uh, an actual workshop, he was interviewing teenagers um, in, in a clinical setting, training ch- other psychiatrists. Um, and uh, afterwards, he said to me, well, you know, what, what, you're, what you're realizing is these children are struggling uh, mightily at the, with the inner life. And I was like, inner life? Wow, that's a, there's a thought. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want, I'm not I'm not embarrassed, but I, like, I was in my twenties. I like the idea that I had a life that was separate from my outer life, from the life of sense and thought and prayer. I mean, these were all very discursive, externally focused practices for me. I mean, I had intuited something else and was looking for something else, but I couldn't have named it. I remember shortly after that, I was introduced to the cloud of unknowing when I did a, uh, a graduate degree in, in this work. And the first, the, the seminal text of this particular degree program was the cloud of unknowing. It, it was across the entire curriculum. Uh, people read and, and looked for the map of the inner life from the cloud of forgetting to the cloud of unknowing, the, the stages, the, the, the use of the mantra, the word, the silencing of the discursive mind, all this stuff was, holy cow, wow. <laughs> There's a capacity to manipulate the inner life and you can watch it and you can see that there's something in addition to the discursive side, the thought side. And in fact, you know, one of the great shocks of my life was to think that embedded in the consciousness, which we call thoughts and, and ideas and action, is also a deep desire that that still small voice is operating all the time. Wow, I thought to myself, do you mean to tell me when I'm sitting here uh, talking to Brie uh, that the, the spark of uh, hunger to know, the, the peace that knows no boundaries is operating in my eyes, in my speech, in my language, in my desire to communicate, in my wonder at what you're thinking right now, that that's the Holy Spirit too, that it's right here in this. Mm. Uh, in the, that was all shockingly powerful insights to me. And I saw it in my kids, you know, because in the students I was teaching in those days, they had this extraordinary power, which was they weren't buying into the mainstream culture. Yeah. And yeah. my job was to get them to. My job, if you're, if you're a high school teacher in an urban high school in the United States of America, a good part of your job is to get your kids to do their chemistry and their physics and their English and their math and their social studies, do their homework so they can rise up the ladder, go to college, get a good job, find their strong income. It all sounds so obvious. 
and so reasonably smart and good and important. And my students were like, nope, no, <laughs> not going there, pal. And I'm like, but wait a minute. And they were like, uh-uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It's not true. It's not fair. It's not real. And I was like, but the periodic table, you know, the dates of the Civil War and the first president and the Articles of Confederation, and you've got to learn this stuff. And they're like, not really. And all of a sudden, I was thinking to myself, what if they have a point? What if there's a whole other way of navigating this? What if there's a whole critique of what I think is sort of normatively true? What if there's a new lens with which to see? And I mean, this all this just kind of I still blows my mind. I'm still shocked by how how much we I have learned in the course of my life about this question you're asking with this podcast, which is what kind of lens mm. and how do we arc, how do we lean into the unknown and the unknowable moments? Um, wow, I, I've just been so blessed to have great teachers and some of them were 16 and some of them were professors and, you know, great universities, but uh, some of them couldn't speak and some of them have Down syndrome. And the, the one thing they've all taught me is be careful what lens you use to interpret the world and try to find the lens that sees from a place of love. That's Ooh. it. That is so inspiring because, you know, as I was listening to you describe that moment of like, oh shit, maybe this lens that I'm forcing on my students isn't real or isn't the right lens through which to engage. Um, almost sounds as if what happened is this normative informational education of like, you need to know these things and in this order and in this way and test in these ways in order to be considered uh, a member of society, in order to succeed. With the eye of the heart, you began to explore that there's another metric of, of wisdom and you've told this story so many times, but because you're talking about the eye of the heart and unknowing the certain kind of cultural, uh, rational, scholastic ways of how we think about knowledge, right? You've told this story, but it's seriously one of my favorites. I'm wondering if you can share it with this audience because it's a profound parable of unknowing about the Special Olympics camera moment yeah, of yeah. flipping the lens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we were at, um, we were, um, the Special Olympics movement, you know, is mostly a hundred thousand little games every year, you know, bowling tournaments and basketball games and fall tournaments and softball tournaments and spring games and summer games in every little community in 190 countries around the world. But then once in a while, we do the big thing, the big show every four years, just like the other guys. And on this particular occasion, the world games were in New Haven, um, in actually very close to where I was living at the time. And all the athletes had been given single-use cameras. This was in the 90s before the, the iPhone got rid of cameras completely. And uh, one of the photographers down in the field was looking at the athletes and they were all looking up towards the top of the stadium. At the time, President Clinton was giving a speech, but he was giving it from the top of the stadium. And he saw them all holding up their cameras to get a picture and they all had their cameras facing backwards. And he realized that these were people with special needs and they obviously never used cameras and they were wasting all their film. So he went over and tried to explain to them, you have to turn the camera around and then you push the button and then you get a good picture. And the athlete said to him, Oh, thank you. But if you look through the camera backwards, it works like a view uh, like binoculars. Hmm. And we are all looking backwards through the camera so we can see president Clinton at the top of the stadium very clearly. 
Now, the photographer told the story. He was the proud one because he realized that in this moment, his lens had seen what he thought was very clear. He had seen people from a developing nation. He'd seen people with an intellectual disability. He'd seen the chance to help, to make a difference, to be caring and compassionate. And he'd seen it all wrong. The very easy, obvious way of seeing it was not what was happening. Uh, the athletes were clever. They had become entrepreneurs of, of improvisation in a moment when they had no other way to, to find a chance to see. So it's been such a great story to help me, remind me over and over again, wait a minute, I, I, I'll think of this story, you, you can't imagine how many times a day this happens to me where I think to myself, am I seeing this clearly? Like just sometimes somebody on the, you know, driving in a car. Or am I seeing this distorted? Am I seeing that person driving a certain kind of car and assuming that you might not be right? You might not be right. right. You know, take the time it takes. You, you, the, the mind is a brilliant analytical tool. I know we, we both share an admiration and a great um, respect for the mind. And I want to make sure people know, I don't think that students in high school in America shouldn't learn the dates of the Civil War or mathematics sure. or English. Of sure. course they should. Yeah. But what the kids were telling me was not just that there's another way of knowing, but that if you don't know first in a way that affirms and respects and sees me, I don't care what else you know. It was almost as though they were describing the eye of the heart to me as the ticket to connection. If you've got it, I'll do anything for you. Yeah. Those kids would come out in the middle of the night if I asked them. Those kids would help my family, my children. It doesn't matter what. If they thought you were legitimately, honestly, authentically able to see them and respect them, then the door opened. Then they'd learn anything. Hmm. If that wasn't there first, though, they didn't care. Because in some ways, what happened in that scene of the Yale Bowl was the athletes helped the photographer shift his lens and at some level realized that the distortion had not allowed him to see them clearly. And that going forward, he wanted to be the kind of guy that didn't make that mistake again, right? He wanted to be the person who would never again take people out of focus uh, and as a result, distort them when you distort people, it's a short trip to marginalization and then even to violence, as we're seeing in our culture today. Absolutely. And there's so much about this that reminds me of Richard Rohr's work and how he describes the epistemology of love, of the way of knowledge is through love. And I'm thinking about how, I think it was Raymond Panikkar who said, to, to try to know a person and say you know them just because you know their name or how tall they are or where they come from. This, this is similar to what you're describing is that that's not really knowing somebody. Having facts about somebody or data or looking at people as if they are statistics or they're in that camp or they are those people is to miss the opportunity to know them by love, through love, which is, as you're saying, the relational field of connecting from the heart. And then then possibility emerges. Then there's creative potential that flourishes from that place. But, you know, I want to kind of pivot to talk about Unite, which is really the place where you and I collaborated and, and really connected. 
um, and became colleagues. So can you describe your vision for that project and in relationship to this uh, exploration that we're having about seeing seeing through the eyes of the heart? Yeah. Well, I think, Bray, we're at the end of a cycle in which the dominance of the mind as the, as the interpreter of reality, primarily through sense data, that, that's gotten us a long way. It's gotten us these computers we're talking on. It's gotten us the airplanes we fly on. It's gotten the clean water we drink, the medicines that keep us alive. Very few people, maybe some, but most people would say, wow, this has been a heck of a journey these last couple hundred years. The mind unleashed to take evidence and marshal it for human advancement. It's been pretty impressive, but it's limited. Mm -hmm. It's limited and it's running out of gas because if you don't have the other side, the other engine, right? The, the open heart, the seeing from a place of receptivity, not control. If you don't see the, want to see the person for who they are, not who you want them to be. If you don't have the capacity to let your own needs yield to the needs of the whole to join yourself to a larger whole, not as a way of losing control, but as a way of actually joining yourself to everything. If you don't have that mind, we end up where we are now, which is increasingly afraid of each other, increasingly disconnected from each other, increasingly anxious and threatened by one another, not just you know, gender, race, political party, but everything. Everything. I mean, those are the big ones, but there are other threats now too. You know, the, the epidemic of our time, there's many of them, but one of them is loneliness. And that's just a symptom of a culture that no longer allows us to feel and be connected, right? And uh, so I think, you know, the, the premise of Unite is that we need attention. The us needs attention. We need the weaving of the skills to bind us more closely together, to teach us how to understand, to stand under one another. And this isn't just big kind of theoretical stuff, Bria, as you know a little bit. You know, we've done this in school for the last 20 years. You can teach a child active listening, you call it. Now, some people would say that's a good uh, skill. It's taught by psychologists. It shows you how to suspend judgment when you listen. It shows you how not to try to interrupt but to repeat back to someone what you heard. It teaches you how to allow the other person's story to stand on its own, not to agree or disagree with it. That's active listening. It also is a lot like unknowing, if you think about it, because you've got to actually close down the knowledge, the assumptions you have. Dr. Rita Walker, the mental health expert in our book that called the United calls it canceling judgment. Wow. Now that's a skill we've seen in the workplace super important. Can you actively listen to your colleague without assuming that she's a jerk, without assuming that he's got the wrong idea, without assuming he's going to get your job, without assuming that she's good, whatever. Uh, the answer is if you can actively listen, you actually do a better job. If you do active listening in sixth grade, you learn your chemistry better. Why? Because you're more receptive. You're more motivated. You're more connected with the full sense of who you are. The Unite Project is to awaken us to the fact that we need a new toolkit for the 21st century that helps us find ways to belong without demonizing and excluding others. We need new stories. There's new stories emerging everywhere. We need what I, what I sometimes call skills. Some people call it a new consciousness. Some people call it a spiritual 
uh, revival that isn't about dogmas and religions as kind of competitive things, but just about the common spirit, the home, the, the spirit of nature. You've taught so much about yourself. So uh, Unite is a big idea premised on the assumption that right now we're kind of in the ER as a culture. We're, we're in trouble. We're hurting. We're scared. We're destructive. We're not solving problems. To get out of this place, we got to stop digging. We got to stop fighting and blaming and shaming and being scared of each other. To do that's going to be a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of time. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. But I feel like all the way back to where we started, you know, the family I was raised in said, try. And the faith I was raised in said, make sure you trust someone else to help you. And so here we go. <laughs> I'm trying to trust that there's a higher authority, a higher power, a higher being, a higher energy, a higher frequency that can get us out of this struggle, this trap we're in as a culture. And I got to believe that giving it my best is uh, what could be more fulfilling. No, oh, absolutely. And just to name the fact that the experience for me in Unite was a really powerful season of unknown. I don't know why you keep saying was. Yeah, there's a lot of past tenses here. Powerful <laughs> season of unknowing in which I realized I had a story of myself as an artist and a spiritual seeker. And mm. so, you know, what the hell was I going to be able to offer and contribute in a political organization that's trying to create political change? But Tim, you really champion that kind of unknowing and fearlessly bring a spiritual lens or the, the lens of the heart or um, an inner life perspective into these meetings with these political heavyweights. Like I, I can't, I could name, I can't even name the amount of times that you would have me leading meditations with people like former presidents of HBO or like the folks from CNN or like people who had worked in various administrations and kind of fearlessly saying, hey, the, the boundaried separation between the spiritual or the inner life and social change and transformation and cultural shifts, all of those boundaries need to become remembered to one another once more. Yeah. I think so, Bray. I mean, I think, look, we have had some meetings where we've had people who have been in senior positions in the White House, and we've asked them to sit for 10 minutes in silence to start a meeting that they've only got 55 minutes to complete. And heads of media companies, the same, and heads of businesses, the same, and homeless men and women, the same, and, uh, you know, 14 and 15-year-olds, the same. I, I do think we've just got to be less afraid of the idea that what matters most matters to all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got to bring what matters most to us as individuals to what matters to, to us. And I think um, when there'll be fits and starts and some people don't like it and some people like that's weird, uh, I'm not coming back, you know, like I, I'm not sure why you did that. We didn't get anything done in those 10 minutes. That'll happen. Um, but I think the long, longer arc here, I'm, I'm big these days on um, trusting that we're in a longer cycle of change and we just have to do our part to uh, make it safe for people to bring to their relationships and to, the, to our work together, which is all that politics is, it's just our large collective relationships, to bring to our largest relationships the matters of the heart. How could you possibly say that we, we, we can't, we shouldn't? How, can we, how could you really argue that the things that matter most to you, to your kids, to your parents, to your neighbors, the things of 
of trust and dignity, of purpose and belonging, of love and affection, of pleasure and joy and nature. That, oh, no, don't bring any of those to politics, please. Uh, this is just about tax policy. I mean, then you get what we got, which is a dogfight over not enlightened self-interest, uh, unabashed self-interest. And, uh, and so you get a, a system where only people who have a lot of power are able to manipulate it. And, and as a result, they get more and more power. And guess what you got? Inequality, racism, sexism, uh, economic ladder that's broken, top bottom 10 rungs are missing. And the, you know, the guy on the 11th or the 12th rung is standing up there looking down on you. So, I mean, and that just doesn't work. So we got to try We got to try to bring back the, the stuff that matters because it's in those qualities. Maybe I can put it this way in those qualities that we have a shot or we have a chance to overcome bias, distortion, a bad lens. If I enter the conversation, even if it's about tax policy, open to the idea that my bias and my distortions may be operating and that my heart, my desire for equality and peace and dignity for everyone needs some permission to be in the room, mm. then maybe we get a tax policy that's good for everybody. But if we don't, we're just going to get, you know, who's going to get a tax policy that's good for me. Right. And that's what we got. And it ain't working. It's so incredible because, you know, for some listeners, there's there's such a strong divide between, you know, what they consider to be creativity, which is often predominantly associated with the arts and, you know, politics, which is associated with just policy and that whole kind of political machinery. And yet what you're saying, Tim, is that if we can sink into the values of the heart, of seeing with the eye of the heart, seeing each other from that place, to bring back that kind of vulnerable concern for the preciousness of life and the desire to see that flourish for all, that what we can give birth to is a, a creativity in our politics, a, a spiritual infusion of what is possible, of what may yet be, could actually come in if we let go of what was and move into that with courage and with practice. And I want to ask you about practice because I know it's it's come up a lot in our research and in our work about the importance of, of affecting change and affecting a real stage of change, not just a state. What do you see as the role of practicing this eye of the heart of maybe uh, we've used the language before of Donna Hicks, where she talks about the dignity of practicing the dignity um, in our relationships with those who have different views than us. Um, what are the practices? Yeah. The first shift, Brie, is the one we're talking about here. When you're in your head, and when I say head, I mean in this narrowest sense, your analytic mind. You're sorting, right? This is a good podcast. That's not a good podcast. I like Brie. I don't like Tim. I like you. <laughs> so that's sorting mind, right? That sorting mind reaches conclusions. And once you reach the conclusion, you got it. I wanna, I'm going to listen to your next podcast, Brie, because I like your podcast. That's it. It's done. You don't need to think more about it. You just need to, you're, you're in. You like cheeseburgers. So you order a cheeseburger. Um, the eye of the heart doesn't operate that way. It requires sustained attention. It doesn't work with ideas. It works with energy. It works mm. with hard space. And so the way in which it communicates, the way in which it nurtures its power is by 
sustained attention to the energy and practice of the heart. So it needs its time, just like the body needs, you know, proteins and carbohydrates and fats and things like that, just like the lungs need air. The heart needs practice. That's how it feeds itself. That's how it does its thing. Every tradition has taught this, right? This is not some obscure, new, fangled, new age BS, frankly. The Benedictines discovered this 1,500 years ago in the monasteries of Western Europe. The Desert Mothers and Fathers in Egypt discovered it 300 years before them. Uh, The ancients in uh, in, uh, many of the mystical traditions of the East discovered it 1,000 years before them. They all said the same thing. There is an energy that comes from deep within that can only be deployed, used, skillfully brought to bear through practice. And we, when, you know, when you and I talk about practice, we're not talking about like once a week. We're talking about once, twice, three, four times a day uh, so that you continually, when that shutter comes down, when the distortion creeps in, and, and again, I just want to say, this is not some new age thing. We can teach this to children. Second graders can learn how to self-regulate and self-witness and become present to their minds to be able to watch and see how they themselves are thinking and have some, just a little bit of distance from those thoughts so they can see, ah, I'm more than my thoughts. Oh, what else am I? Ooh, that was interesting. Listen, feel what just came up. So uh, we have to build into our workplaces I mean, you know, I, I, I often laugh. People say, oh, you're, you're a Catholic. Do you go to church every Sunday? I'm like, every Sunday? <laughs> every day. <laughs> Three times a day. <laughs> I mean, imagine when every Sunday I'd be a hot mess, you know? Like I, I couldn't even survive till Tuesday if I only went on Sunday. So, um, and I don't think I'm, I'm crazy. I mean, I might be. It's certainly possible. But I think what, what I but I had the great, great privilege of being taught by great teachers uh, was that the sustained attention to this kind of thinking, this kind of being in the moment, unlocks enormous um, possibility uh, and, and vision. And, you know, you've talked about creativity. You're right. Most people think, well, you must be a painter or a singer or a musician of some kind or a dancer. The great creativity is to see what no one else sees, you know, in a moment. In the blink of an eye, as St. Paul says, in, in, in contact with someone sitting across a, a cup of coffee, to be able to open it and shut your eyes and in that one blink to see, oh my God, look how beautiful he is or she is, you know? <sighs> you know, to have your breath taken away there, that capacity, all of a sudden, my gosh, the, 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 the ideas that flow into that space. People are probably listening to this going, this guy is certifiable. Not my audience. They're, <laughs> they're probably cheering you on right now. <laughs> I mean, you've got our number. You're singing our song. This is what we're about on this show. Just to, to continue that thread, Tim, there's a sense in which what you're describing as the necessity for practice is, is so similar to what we do hear many artists talk about in being disciplined to their craft, right? Which is that if I'm a dancer um, and I'm not stretching daily or practicing daily, as your daughter Carolyn knows this, right? If I'm a da- if I'm not doing those things daily, then I don't have the freedom to move with full grace and power on that stage. If I'm an artist and I'm not 
showing up in a daily way with my paintbrushes and the courage to say, okay, today I will begin again on a new canvas. What masterpieces am I missing out on creating? If I'm, if I'm a musician and I don't sit down with the guitar in, in a posture of deep unknowing and say, okay, let it flow through me yet again, you know, like whatever that power is that, that creates something new. What song is not being sung? And similarly, you're saying, if we don't have that kind of practice of the heart, how could we possibly expect to see each other, really see each other in a new way and be able to yeah. bring that possibility? You know, how Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand. It's not like out there. It's not, it's not aspirational. It's like, no, this is at hand. This is possible. But you have to actually do the work from the heart. The only thing I, I worry about with our tribe, if I can put it that way, Brie, is that sometimes we make it too individualistic. Yes. Even the language we sometimes use, everybody has to do their work. Right, right. You know, and if you don't do your work, you can't expect to get your result. You know, I, first of all, I agree with all that, but. And. Sorry. And. Good point. Thank you. And there is a way in which the practice is to learn how to see neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, to see each other, right? To unlock your own lens so that you can mirror to another their lens, their possibility, their beauty, their dignity, their lovability. Now, it's not, like you say, it's not an either or. I just want all of us who believe so much in the inner life, and I think these numbers are growing, thank goodness, and who practice and cultivate the many pathways to unknowing within each of us on our many traditions and some with no tradition, but just beautiful practices. We need to find ways to make these socially and culturally powerful practices so that people will say, oh, look at them, not just look at her. Right. Uh, look at that group. That is a group of people, you know, so sound a little bit familiar. Look how they love one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that what we were supposed, I mean, for those of us who were raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this, that whole arc was supposed to get to the point where people would look at us and say, oh my, they love one another. I don't think many people drive by our churches and civic organizations. Maybe they do. I hope so. I hope I'm wrong about this. But we, we have to make this, this cultivation of heart into cultivation of collective heart. Yeah. The beloved community, as Dr. King said. And that's also practices, right? It's not just my cushion, although I like my cushion. And it's not just my bells and my chime and my contemplative practice or my chant or whatever it is, my tree. Um, it's got to be us too. That's what I hope your listeners will, will listen in your podcast, not just to the work of individual unknowing and the practices that it it can unleash for me, but the collective work of creative transformation that can be unleashed for us if we unknow together. Yes. And that seems to be the the greatest invitation of our time, Tim, you know, that what is calling on the other side of what, you know, I've quoted this before, I've said this before, frustration breeds creativity, right? So what is calling on the other side of all of this religious friction and frustration of what's not working about institutional religion, what's not working about politics, what's not working about, you know, social structures, on the other side of that is a new possibility, a new emergence, another reality that we can co-create together. And as you name so beautifully, this is not an individual pursuit. 
this is a salvation of the whole, if you want to use that kind of language. But it's like, yeah. it's we're all in this together. And so what, what would you say is, in your view, Tim, the biggest hurdle for us in this next stage? Because, you know, as, as we're slowly emerging out of the pandemic and you know, Unite really began in the fire, the political vitriol of the second half of, of Trump's presidency. And while that is still very much at play, there's a little bit of a strange kind of sleepy lull that I think is deceptive right now, where the excitement for this emergence post-pandemic, along with um, Biden's presidency, could create a little bit of a mirage of, well, it's things are fine or things are going to get better. I don't really need to engage and participate um, or offer a new collective vision for who we might become as a nation or as a world. What do you see as that responsibility or opportunity for us in this moment? Well, um, the word I would use is trust. I wonder, Brie, if you were to write down not people you trust, but institutions you trust, how long the list would be. And I would encourage the listeners to do the same. Um, when you hear from people at uh, XYZ, do you trust them? Very few of us trust institutions anymore. And there's a reason for that, that these institutions, many of them have failed us. But we, unless we restore and strengthen trust, trust not, not with kind of nice talk, but with the actual deeds necessary to build trust, trust depends on uh, delivering, listening, you know, those kids, when I was describing those students listening, you know, not listening to me, they didn't trust me and they didn't, des I didn't deserve their trust. But over time, I hope, I, 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 I was better. I'm not going to say great, but I was better at recognizing that the hurdle, the trust hurdle was the big thing. Mm. I think the trust hurdle is our big thing. I don't have all the solutions. Part of it's listening. Part of it's delivering new solutions. Part of it's people like you and me coming up with stuff and, and then delivering it and saying, look, here's a way to build trust. Listen to this community of people on Bree's podcast. This is a team. You can trust these people. They don't necessarily have all the right answers, but their heart's open. And that's all you ask for in trust, right? You don't, you don't trust your mother because she's perfect. You trust your mother because she loves you. <laughs> we hope. Right. I think trust is the word that comes to mind is the big hurdle, but we've got to deliver for people, you know, and, and this is not just delivering for people who are progressives, you know, the people who are challenging the inequalities in our system, but also delivering for people who are conservatives, who are feeling marginalized and mocked and humiliated by the, by the progressive left. Are they all the same? No, they're not all the same. But we've got to bridge divides. You know that beautiful, those beautiful texts in Isaiah, some of my favorites, there's, it repeats itself a couple of times where, you know, you give your clothes to the naked, you, you feed the hungry, you house the homeless, you visit the sick. And then at one point, Isaiah writes, you will be known as a healer of the breach, as someone who crossed divides, right? Someone who saw a gap between you and the other, and you healed it. It doesn't say you're going to have your name up on the side of the building as the person who gave the most money. It doesn't even say you're going to necessarily improve the system, although that would be important. But what it says is you'll be a healer of the breach. We need healers of the breach, not people who deny the inequalities or the problems in the culture, but people who build the bridge in order to solve the problem, to release the transformational idea. 
So uh, those are the things I think of. I think of trust and healing the breach and then delivering real change. I think we got to do all those. You know, we talked about it as skills and stories. We got to tell new stories. If you watch the news tonight, you're not going to get a good story about who we are. It's one story. It's not the only story. There are other stories. You're not going to get a story of Bree Stoner. You're not going to get the story of Richard Roy. You're not going to get the story of Cynthia Portrow. You're not going to get the story of Misha Robinson or Darius Spikes. You're not going to get the story of people who are risking it all to heal these gaps. You're, you're going to get the story of everybody who wants to make you hate. That's the story you're going to get. If we don't tell a different story, if we don't learn different skills, and if we don't come up with better solutions, we're done. That's my conviction. It's such a powerful invitation, Tim, to, to center on this word trust, to consider that perhaps we can trust our heart's deepest longing and desire that it's possible. And as you said, not just personally, but collectively, what we long for, we often describe this in our work as like a different kind of nationalism, a different kind of full engagement and participation and civic responsibility of manifesting a new way of relating and being membered to one another. What I hear you inviting us to is to have the courage to trust that that could be real if we gave ourselves to it. And to know at some level, right, yeah. that it requires... Yeah, that this is, this is not an exercise. It's not like a shortcut thing. It's no, not like, no. uh, okay, I'll trust you today. Uh, we'll see how you do. There's that part. That's, that's, that's another side of trust. I don't mean that it's not present. You know, I don't go back to a restaurant if the food is lousy because I don't trust it anymore. I get it. But there's another side, which is to risk yourself in service to the idea that everyone else is trying to do the same thing. And everybody's looking around saying, I would be happy. This is what I think most happens to us, Brie. I think most of us think I would be more than happy to love everyone and trust everyone, but not everyone else is going to do it. So I won't. You got to be the people who go, even if people don't reciprocate, I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to trust you. You know, uh, Barbara Holmes has a beautiful uh, line in, the, in our book, The Call of the Night, where she says, I won't get it exactly right, but bless someone, forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, right? What she's asking us to do is, is without anyone knowing it, to put yourself in the game again. Open up, open up, open up. I don't know that I can predict that the world is going to all of a sudden get beautiful, but I do believe that even, um, even if it hurts, it's the place where happiness and fulfillment lie, is, is in risking yourself for the love of one another and for the peace and justice of the whole. The words of Abraham Joshua Heschel come to mind where he describes those who live with faith live with radical awe and wonder. And Tim, I, I can think of no person who embodies that more than you in the ways in which you have dedicated your life to making sure that everyone knows they belong and belong in the game and that their lives, their participation matters and is so deeply precious and counts. Um, thank you for being on the show today and sharing your wisdom and for inviting us to have that kind of radical imagination and hope and belief in what is possible when we risk it all and give it our all. Well, thank you, Bree. Thank you for having me. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for following this path. 
Um, and thank you for inviting all of us, the people who are going to be part now of your community, uh, to imagine this little way, right? The simple way, the unknowable way, the unknowing way. It's the way of the child in us. It's the way of the miraculous that Einstein spoke of. Uh, everything is a miracle. Oh my goodness. When we, when we can practice our way into that unknown space within us and know, know that it's a place of safety and ultimate trust and know that everyone else is there too. Wow, the things we could accomplish. And we don't have to worry about church and state and we don't have to worry about, you know, the zones of uh, this, that, and the other constitutional question. We, that those were great issues uh, at a certain time. Now we have a new issue. How do we see with the eye of love and solve problems uh, uh, in a way that produces justice and peace for all of us? We can only get there if each of us recognizes that there's a certain group of people right now that we can't stand. And we think, I'll love everybody except them. That's the group. Whatever, whatever, whoever it is for you, whatever it is for me, uh, go there. Uh, help yourself, help others go to their place where they don't see value. Then we get to be like little children and uh, continue on this path, I hope, to a more hopeful future. So we're learning how to look beyond our maps, how to see each other more clearly, how to trust each other more deeply. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking from this incredible conversation. True North wisdom number one, maybe we're the ones saying it backwards. I love the Special Olympics story. It has stayed with me. I hope it stays with you. But it's a great invitation for us to reconsider our own elitism, our pride, our uh, arrogance. When we think we know, how to look at the world. And we see others looking at the world differently and we have the arrogance to assume that they're wrong. Maybe let's try to develop a sense of curiosity instead, a willingness to go speak with those who are different than us and say, hey, I noticed you're looking at your lens in this particular way. What do you see? Because Maybe they're seeing something that we're missing out on. True North wisdom number two, it takes practice to develop the kind of heart perception that Tim is talking about. This is not the realm of the rational mind that likes to divide and conquer. Literally, that's what the mind does, <laughs> divides and conquers. So in order to develop a different way of perceiving one another, if we want to create a new political possibility, we have to do our work and do our part. And true North wisdom number three, this is not an individual practice. The personal is political. We are all a part of the collective. We are all notes in the symphonic whole. So we need to learn how to see beyond just the cushion of our daily work and to see it as a collective opportunity for us to co-create, to rekindle a spiritual and civic imagination, to be creative together of collectively unknowing what has been 
so that we can make room for what could be. In manifesting a new way of relating. That's how Beatrice Bruteau defines politics. That's how Tim defines politics. Politics is the art of relationships. So if we want to create a new political reality, we must learn how to relate to each other differently. And that can only begin by seeing each other in a new way, by perceiving with the eye of the heart. That's it for this episode. If you found this conversation helpful or meaningful, please consider rating the show or share it with a friend. You can also join the community of patrons who make this podcast possible. To learn more or for some resources on this path of creative possibility, visit unknowing.org. This music was brought to you by Avila, band duo that I'm a part of. You can find this song. It's called Some Understanding. Download it wherever you get your music. And remember, as Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying to.